Okay, y'all come on in and grab a name tag and a book up here. Now, in your hand you have a book entitled Hope and Help for Your Nerves by Dr. Clara Weeks. Now, she has passed on. She wrote several books. She's an MD from Australia. She's also a doctorate and a doctorate in medical science. And this is a book she wrote later in her life. And she wrote it like a grandmother sitting on your bedside talking to you. And I want to say one thing about this book. I know only of one book beside the Bible that reading it can cure you. And it's this book right here. Now, I buy these books by the box. I can give, I can give out one a week easily. And, and because people are more stressed out in our, particularly in our time and in our culture than ever in history. And by the way, if you just came in, you need to come up here please and grab a name tag and a book. Everyone needs one of these books. You'll see one in a moment. But the, uh, yeah, the, the, the level of panic, panic attack and anxiety attack in our, in our culture right now is epidemic. As I mentioned in the announcement, it is number one emotional challenge the problem that women deal with is number two for men, only because for men, number one is drug addiction. So a lot of times people think they're suffering from this and no one else is. I'm telling you, almost everyone is. It's all over the place. It's rampant. And I'll say as pastors, you get, whether you know it or not, half of the pastors that I know, particularly of larger churches, have suffered from it. And a big part of it is because you, you just you're dealing with constant, constant stress. And we'll see in a moment the different ways that you can come about it. There's a few different ways it can happen to you. I'm, I just turned 55. When I was 41, it happened to me, and I was in the middle of growing Grace Community Church. I was leading the pastors' network in our city. I was starting to travel and speak different places in the world. I was going to Washington, D.C. and dealing with congressmen, and I was just taking everything on. I mean, I was going to I was going to be Spartacus for Jesus. And then one day it happened to me. I thought, what in the world was that? What was that? At first I thought, that can't happen to a strong person. Since then, I've learned that's who it does happen to. It doesn't happen to weak people. See, it happens to strong people because you tend to take on so much. You tend to take on too much. That's one of the problems. But I didn't have, but no one was giving me the answers. I had this thing happen to my body. Well, what is happening to me? And here's the part of the problem. See, it's something you have, and we're going to talk about this, you have this first fear, which can get you, you know, fear number one can get you overwrought by itself, but then it brings about certain symptoms in your body, and then there's something called a second fear. Now you're afraid of what's happening in your body. And that says more adrenaline. By the way, adrenaline is a culprit in all this. And that says more adrenaline, 
and then you're like, and more things happen in your body because of the adrenaline, and you're scared of those things. That says more adrenaline. And when it goes, and it just goes fear, adrenaline, fear, adrenaline, fear, adrenaline cycle. And that's what an anxiety attack is. That's what panic attack is. And so I'm having all this happen to me at 41, and I've got heart disease in my family. Bad heart disease. And so automatically, I must be having a heart attack. And I've got palpitations, you know. So they take me to the hospital. And thinking, well, and they're even saying, well, you got heart disease in your family, so it probably is your heart. And then they hook me up to everything, and I've got, I, I have an irregular heartbeat, which makes them think, the first look is, he is having a heart attack. So now they are telling me we got this problem, which throws, throws more adrenaline into my system. And on and on and on. So, and then the doctors come back later and say, well, you have this or this or this. And actually, years later, they're like, we don't even, you don't even have that anymore. We don't know. But I was trying to find somebody that could tell me what was happening to my body, and no one was able to. Everyone and all the doctors are telling me physiological things, you know, about my body. And it wasn't, and I'm not getting answers. So I called a friend of mine up, John Smeltzer. He's retired now, and, but uh, John Smeltzer was the number one counselor in Fort Worth that I referred people to. John and Joyce Smeltzer wants staff and Anaheim, California, back when John Wimber was pastor there, and, and, he's, and, and he was just a very godly man, older man, biblical, spirit-filled. I called him up and said, John, something's happening, and I don't know what's happening to my body. I think I broke something. <laughs> and as soon as I tell him everything, he says, I want you to go out and buy the only book beside the Bible I know that will heal you if you'll read it. And he told me this book. I mean, I was in my car in 10 minutes. I mean, I'm looking for some relief. I'm looking for somebody that understands what's happening to my body. I go and buy this book. I read the first 60 pages, and I go, oh, I'm going to be okay. I see a way out of the maze. <clears throat> Finally, I'm reading somebody that understands what's going on in my body. Finally. And there's a process after that, after understanding, there's still a process, you know, and we'll talk about that. But if you are struggling with any degree of that, by the way, there's different degrees of it. I, mean, I feel like I kind of topped out. Sometimes I think, Lord, do I have to experience everything so I can help people with it? Can't I just have some theory, you know? But... Uh, when I finally, finally started getting some relief, it was just such a blessing. But I want you to know, even after that, I, I was, I, I'd so abused my adrenaline system <coughs> for so long that even after knowing what to do, I preached dizzy for six months. Sometimes I'm holding that pulpit <laughs> because I'm trying not to fall down. Now, that's back when I was 41. Don't worry, I'm not preaching dizzy now, so everybody relax. We found a couple of your sermons look pretty dizzy to me. I don't know. But I'm so glad you're here. And you're going to be so glad you came. Now, some of you might be thinking, I haven't had that level you're talking about. I'm going to talk about some lower levels of stress later. And a lot of this might relate to you, not relate to you. And there's going to be some symptoms we're going to talk about. No one has all the symptoms we're going to talk about. So you can hear some symptoms go, 
I'll let you know about that one. We're going to have that one too. No. <laughs> Whatever you've had is what you're going to have. And that's how it works. So you can relax about that too. But what we're going to do, if I had my, if I had my preference, I would sit down with like a few people at a time and talk. And but I was thinking, we got like 50, 50 people, 55 or something. I thought I'd rather do one group of 55 and 10 groups of five. So anyway, so, but I'd, personally, I'd rather just talk with you. And what would I do? If I could do anything to help somebody with this, what would I do? That's what I'm going to do this morning. What I would do is I wouldn't just say, take this and read it and hope you understand it and hope you actually do read it and hope you get it. If I really wanted to make sure I helped you, I would say, let's read it together. Now, we're not going to read this whole book together this morning, but we are going to read a lot of it together. What I want to do is start off, I've never done this before. I've never in 30 plus years of leading ministry, I've never done it like this. But I'm just dealing, I want to do what I think is going to work to help you. And I don't know anyone that says it better than she does. And so what I want to do is I want to start, I want to walk through, I want to read it together with you, and then I want to comment from time to time about what she said and what that means. And not only are you, those of you that struggle with this, not only are you going to get relief today. I mean, before, before you leave today, you're going to go, oh, gosh, I'm so glad to know this. Because here's the truth. The truth is, how you feel is determined by how you think. But the good news how you, is how you think can be changed. And what we're going to do today is we're going to begin to think differently about some things. You shall know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth shall set you free. And by the way, anyone who struggles uh, with this on a continual basis, somewhere you're believing something's not true. And we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to fill your mind with some truth today. It's going to change that. So let's go ahead and get the book, and I want to start off with you on page one. <laughs> page one, he starts off, Claire starts off with power within you. By the way, uh, she suffered from it as well. That's why she can write about it. She understood it. Page number one, power within you. If you're reading this book because your nerves are, quote unquote, in a bad way, you're the very person for whom it has been written. And I shall therefore talk directly to you as if you were sitting beside me. I shall show clearly and simply, and yet with all necessary detail, how such nervous illness begins and develops and how it can be cured. The advice given here will definitely cure you if you follow it. This will take perseverance and some courage. You might want to underline that. By the way, one reason I want you to have this book is you're probably going to need to go back to it from time to time, so a lot of you. This will take perseverance and some courage. You may notice that I have not asked for patience. A, nervous, a nervously ill person is rarely patient because sick nerves are usually agitated nerves. That's one reason why he is bewildered by them. 
To wait patiently in line can be almost intolerably miserable for such a person. However, there is a substitute for patience, and this I shall present to you later. It would not be difficult for you to read this book. It is about you and your nerves. And for this reason, you will read it with interest. Whereas to read an ordinary book or newspaper may seem an impossibility, or should you succeed, may leave you more distressed than you when you began. I use the word cure, and this may surprise you, because it implies an illness, and you may think of yourself as more bewildered than ill, lost in a maze, trying to find your way back to being the person you used to be. On the other hand, you may be so depressed, exhausted, that you may readily agree that you are ill. Whether or not, whether or not you consider yourself ill, more than anything else, you want to be yourself again. You probably look at others in the street and wonder why you can't be like them. What is this terrible thing that has happened to you? What is the meaning of these terrible feelings? Such feelings may have possessed you for a long time, even for years. Indeed, you may have reached a point of such desperate suffering that you could be thinking of ending it all, or may, or may even have attempted to do just that. And yet, however deeply involved you may be in nervous illness, however long you may have suffered, you can recover and enjoy life again. I emphasize however deeply involved and however long. The main difference between a person ill for many years and someone ill for a short time is that the one who suffered for long has had more time to collect disturbing memories, especially the memory of much defeat. So he despairs easily. But there's nothing altered within this person. Determining, turning that, I'm sorry, but there is nothing altered within this person determining that because he has been ill for so long. He cannot possibly recover. In other words, he's thinking, I cannot possibly recover. Yes, you can. However long you may have been ill, your body is waiting to recover in exactly the same way as the body of a person who has been ill for only a short time. It's important to understand this because your illness is very much an illness of how you think is very much an illness of your attitude to fear, panic. You may think it is an illness of how you feel, most certainly seems like that, but how you feel depends on how you think, on what you think, because it, it is an illness of what you think you can recover. Thoughts that are keeping you ill can be changed. And that will happen this morning. In other words, your approach to your illness can be changed. Now, don't despair when you read this. I know how easily you despair and how impossible it may seem to you at this moment to imagine changing your approach to your illness. It is my work to show you how to do this, to help you do this. Have the courage to read on and see what you must do. Don't despair. Take heart. When I see a person who has suffered from nervous illness for a long while, I do not think of him or her as hopelessly, chronically ill. Neither do I see a coward. I see a suffering, bewildered person who has possibly not had an adequate explanation of his illness, adequate help. So many people have been cured at last after having been ill for many years that no one should be discouraged by a history of long illness. The guidance you need is in this small book. The perseverance you can, with help, find within yourself. The strength to recover is within you once you are shown the way, I assure you of this. Now, if 
by the way, she will later on talk about the importance of faith. So when she says within you, she's not thinking that God can't help. She, she says we need to trust God, okay? She just wants you to know that you can do this. Each of us has unsuspected power to accomplish what we demand of ourselves. If we care to search for it, you are no exception. You can find it if you make up your mind to, however great a coward you may think yourself at this moment. I have no illusions about you. I'm not writing this book for the rare, brave people, but for you. A sick, suffering, ordinary human being with no more courage than the rest of us. But, and this is an important thing, with the same unplumbed, unsuspected power in reserve as the rest of us. It is possible that you may be aware of such power, but may feel, because of your nervous condition, unable to release it. This book will help you find this power and show you how to use it. First, you must know how your nervous system works. Okay, so now she's going to go on and explain that in this chapter. And by the way, understanding how your nervous system works is really important because you understand what's happening in your body. And as soon as you understand what's happening, then you're no longer afraid of it. By the way, that's that second fear that throws you in a spin. As soon as you understand how it works, and then you know what's happening, the more you know, oh, I know what that is. And adrenaline doesn't you know, flush into your system again because you're no longer afraid. All right, how our nervous system works. Our nervous system consists of two main parts known as voluntary and involuntary, or automatic, autonomic, autonomic, is that how you say it? Autonomic. Autonomic, thank you. The voluntary nerves. These nerves direct the movement of limbs, head, and trunk, and we control them more or less as we wish, hence their name, voluntary. They consist of brain and spinal cord from which a number of paired nerves arise, each ending in the muscle it supplies. The involuntary nerves. Your endocrine glands govern and regulate the normal functions of our body, including our body's reaction to stress. They do this with the help of involuntary nerves that act as their messengers. The involuntary nerves have their headquarters in a brain center connected with a delicate network of fibers, involuntary nerves, lying on either side of the spinal column, the backbone, from which numerous thread-like branches pass to the internal organs, heart, lungs, intestines, etc. Unlike the voluntary nerves, the involuntary nerves are not under our direct control, but as this is of paramount importance in understanding nerves, they respond to our moods. For example, when we are afraid and our cheeks, you know, they blush and our pupils dilate, our hearts races and our hands may sweat. We do not consciously react this way and we have no power to stop these reactions other than to change our mood. This is why we call these nerves involuntary. The involuntary nerves themselves consist of two parts, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Of these, the sympathetic sympathizes more demonstratively with our moods, hence its name. The action of the sympathetic nerves strengthens an animal's defenses against the various dangers that beset it, such as extremes of temperature, deprivation of water, attack by its enemies, any form of stress. Have you ever seen a frightened animal standing stock still from fear before taking flight? Its nostrils and its pupils dilate, its heart races, it breathes quickly. The sympathetic nerves taking signal from the, the endocrine glands and acting as their messengers have prepared the animal for fight or flight. Now most of us have heard of the fight or flight. And that's it. The adrenaline is shooting in there and 
the nerves are responding. All right, the pattern of fear. We human beings react in the same way when afraid. Fear begins as an impulse in our brain that excites the sympathetic nerves to stimulate various regions and organs to produce the signs and symptoms of fear, the sweating hands, racing heart, quick breathing, dry mouth, etc. The sympathetic nerves do this mainly by a chemical called adrenaline, which is released at the nerve terminals in the organs concerned. Also, our two adrenal glands themselves, under sympathetic uh, nervous stimulation, secrete additional adrenaline into our bloodstream to enhance the action of the sympathetic nerves. When we are afraid, we also feel a horrible sensation in the pit of the stomach. This is the most distressing component of fear. However, the complete picture of fear includes all the symptoms induced by adrenaline, sweating hands, churning stomach, racing heart, tight chest, etc., as well as the spasm of fear left in our middle. Some of you know that one, just from the middle. Normally, we do not feel our body functioning because parasympathetic nerves hold the sympathetic nerves in check. It's only when we are overwrought, angry, afraid, excited, that sympathetic nerves dominate the parasympathetic and we are conscious of certain organs functioning. Now listen to this. A healthy body without stress is a peaceful body. Most of us associate kindness and understanding with the word sympathetic. And as a reaction to the sympathetic nerves can be anything but kind. Some people find it difficult to reconcile themselves to the term sympathetic nerves. Therefore, to avoid bewilderment, I shall henceforth refer to the sympathetic nerves as the adrenaline-releasing nerves. Adrenaline is not the only hormone concerned with expressing emotion, particularly stress. However, for the sake of simplicity, I'm concerned only with it. So briefly, we have the voluntary nerve nerves by means of which we move our body, and involuntary nerves consisting of adrenaline-releasing nerves, and parasymp parasympathetic division that help to control the function of our internal organs, each part checking the other. Normally, we do not feel our involuntary nerves working, but when we are overwrought, the adrenaline-releasing nerves are especially stimulated, and we may feel our heart be quickly, our hands may sweat and our mouth feel dry. In addition, our stomach may churn. We may feel breathless, giddy, and may have an urgent need to retire to the toilet. Okay. Now she's about to talk about, now I'm just going to read some of this about a nervous breakdown. Because, first of all, understand, I don't think the term nervous breakdown is helpful at all. First of all, it's not a very scientific term because no one... When, you, when does it qualify as that? It's better to think of it, uh, I think it's better to think of it uh, having, you know, it's, she calls it nervous illness. She's actually going to talk a little bit about the term nervous breakdown. But I think it's more about, now, I would even say in a nervous illness, I'd say it's about a fatigued adrenaline system. And you've, some of us have, have lived on adrenaline for so long and pressed through and pressed through and pressed through that your adrenaline system is fatigued and it's no longer functioning. It's no longer functioning like it's designed to function. So it starts overproducing and underproducing adrenaline. When it overproduces adrenaline, you're susceptible to a panic or anxiety attack. 
When it underproduces adrenaline, you feel like you have no energy at all. People call that burnout. But it, so this, this term is not helpful. And I, the reason I, I, I say that because some people are thinking, oh no, I knew it. I'm having a nervous breakdown. And they equate that with a mental breakdown or something. So it's not a helpful term. It isn't at all. And she's going to actually mention that, but let's, let, let's read that. It will be appreciated that there are different grades of nervous suffering. Countless people have bad nerves, and many of them, although distressed, continue at their work and cannot be said to suffer from nervous breakdown. Indeed, while they readily admit to having bad nerves, they would indignantly refute any suggestion of a breakdown. And yet a nervous breakdown is no more than an intensification of their symptoms. All this book is concerned mainly with is concerned mainly with the development and treatment of nervous breakdown. Almost every symptom complained of by people with bad nerves will be found here. And such people will recognize themselves again and again in the, in the, in the patients with breakdowns described in the following passage. The symptoms are the same, it is but their severity that varies. The person with breakdown feels these symptoms more intense. So that's how they use the word. And so it's so there's a whole in, in this room right here, if we had a, if we just graphed where everyone's nervous, what they've struggled with and stress and nervous illness, everyone probably be in a different place in the, in the spectrum, okay? And so where do you draw the lines to, to qualify someone who's having a breakdown? It's not helpful. And even if you qualify for it, you still heal. You still, you're still gonna heal from the stuff we're talking about today, so don't worry about it. Okay, uh, I'm gonna read this next paragraph. Where do bad nerves end and where does nervous breakdown begin? By nervous breakdown, we mean a state in which a person's nervous system, system symptoms are so intense that he copes inadequately with his daily work or does not cope at all. To put it more scientifically and more fully, by nervous breakdown, we mean a major interruption in the body's efficient functioning as a result of emotional and mental fatigue brought on and maintained by stress, mainly by fear. Okay, go over to the next page. Uh, I want to just go to the very last paragraph of nine. In this book, I'm concerned only with these two types, the most unusual types of breakdown. The term breakdown is unscientific and unnecessarily alarming. And the term anxiety state is too medical for the purpose of this book. So I will henceforth avoid using them where possible and replace them with the term nervous illness. So that whole chapter is about why she's not going to call it breakdown. She's calling it illness because it freaks people out anyway. And it's not helpful and doesn't really mean anything. So, let's go on. Chapter 4. The commonest, simplest form of nervous illness. People suffering from the commonest, simplest form of nervous illness, simplest form of anxiety state, complain of some or all of the following symptoms. Can I again, some of these are going to relate to you guys, some aren't. Fatigue, churning stomach, indigestion, racing heart, banging heart, palpitations, missed heartbeats, a sharp pain under the heart, a sore feeling around the heart, sweating hands, pins and needles in the hands and feet, especially the hands, a choking feeling in the throat, an inability to take a deep breath, a tight feeling across the chest, ants crawling under the skin, a tight band of pain around the head, a heavy weight pressing on top of the head, Giddiness, strange tricks of vision such as the apparent movement of an inanimate objects, weak spells, sleeplessness, depression, nausea, occasional vomiting, diarrhea, and the frequent desire to pass urine may be added to the list. 
The following is a typical list brought to the doctor by such a patient. This was brought by a young mother. It is printed exactly as she wrote it. All tied up, headaches, tired and weary, palpitations, dreadful, nervous, sharp pain under the heart, no interest, restless, my heart beats like lead. I have a heavy lump of dough in my stomach, heart shakes. Sufferers from these symptoms are quite certain that there is something seriously wrong with them and cannot believe that anyone else could have had such a distressing experience. Many feel convinced that they have a brain tumor, at least something deep-seated, or they're at the, on the verge of insanity. Their one wish is to be as quickly as possible a person they used to be before this horrible thing happened to them. They are rarely aware that their symptoms are nervous, emotional, in origin and follow a well-recognized pattern shared by numerous sufferers, millions of people, like themselves, a pattern of continuous fear and tension. I would add in there, kept alive by adrenaline. Okay, the three main pitfalls leading into nervous illness. This is real important here. <clears throat> three main pitfalls to lead into nervous illness. They are, you ought to underline these three words, sensitization, bewilderment, and fear. Sensitization, bewilderment, and fear. Sensitization is a state in which our nerves react in an exaggerated way to stress. That is, they bring very intense feelings when under stress, and they may react this way with alarming swiftness, almost in a flash. Okay? Understand, you're sensitized. Because of that, you're reacting in an, in an exaggerated way because you are sensitized. We have surely all felt it in a mild way at the end of a day's tense work when our nerves feel on edge and little things upset us too much. Constant tension alerts nerves to react in a mildly exaggerated way. It is not pleasant and we don't like it. If it is more severe, we may be alarmed and think that our nerves are in a very bad way indeed. Again, underline the sentence. So much nervous illness is no more than severe sensitization kept alive by bewilderment and fear. In other words, just because you're in a sensitized state doesn't mean you're going to stay that way. You will heal unless it's kept alive by bewilderment and fear. That's what keeps you sensitized. Okay? And we're going to talk about overcome that as we go along. Okay, here's an example. The cleaner's broom against the bed. Severe, first, I'm checking on page 12. Severe sensitization can come suddenly or gradually. It can come suddenly following a shock to our nervous system, such as an exhausting surgical operation. By the way, a lot of people after a major operation will struggle with anxiety panic attack. Okay? That's, that's real common. Some of you guys might be where it first happened to you. Okay, let me read that sentence again. Severe sensitization can come suddenly or gradually. It can come suddenly follow, follow a shock to our nervous system, such as exhausting surgical operation, a severe hemorrhage, a difficult confinement, an accident. In fact, uh, when you know, I were talking before the class about guys who come back from war, post-traumatic stress syndrome, that's what this is. That's what they have. And most of them are never told any of this. They're just medicating. 
and said they're disabled. They could all be healed. For example, a patient without a nerve in his body may go to the hospital for an operation and after the operation may awaken to find that the gentle impact of a cleaner's broom against his bed may shoot through him like a whipping flash and the strain of waiting for a visitor to arrive may bring such agitation that waiting may seem intolerable. Severe sensitization may come more gradually following, okay, here's some other ways it can happen to you. Following too strenuous dieting, one of the things I was doing before, before I was 41, before all this happened to me, is I did a lot of long fast. And one of my I went 28 days and with no food, and so there's so a lot of times just and that's when I, was, I noticed some dizziness toward the end of that fast, and and I was doing something to my body that was causing it a problem. Okay, so severe dieting can bring this about, severe anemia, indeed following any debilitating illness. Or it may accompany the constant tension of being in a difficult life situation, such as living with an alcoholic husband or wife, an incompatible in-law, an erring child. In other words, just constant stress. In other words, long, anxious brooding on any difficult life situation may gradually bring sensitization. So there's two ways you get sensitized. One is it could be a sudden thing, like it's a result of an accident, or an operation, or it can be a gradual thing. She mentions some of the ways that can happen. Okay. At the end of the pew at the back of the church, also some nervously ill people have no cause for their illness as apparent as those just mentioned, and much time may then be spent searching in such people for deep-seated causes, so-called subconscious causes, in the hope that by finding them, the patient may be cured. While exposing a hidden cause for nervous illness may be interesting, I have rarely seen it help a person who has been ill for a long time. Present, present sensitization remains to be cured, whatever the original cause. In other words, you don't have to know why it happened. Don't get bogged down there. It doesn't really matter. You still can get healed the same way. We're going to talk about it. The sensitized person is concerned with the state he is in now, not with what may possibly have caused it in a long time ago. He's afraid of so much. On Sunday, he sits at the end of the pew, the back of the church, so that he can slip out, slip out unnoticed if, as he thinks, his fear may grow beyond him. At the school function, at the restaurant, he sits near the door, just in case. Just in case. By the way, we're going to find out that that's the way to stay sick. That is not the way to get healed. And we're going to see that. All right, next page, 13. When a person is constantly sensitized and afraid of the state he's in, we may say he's nervous, nervously ill, fear must come into the picture to bring this kind of illness. Sensitization alone is not enough because without fear, the body will quickly repair its sensitized state. You ought to underline that too. Sensitization alone is not enough because without fear, the body will quickly repair its sensitized state. Okay, the simple shock of tripping in the dark. The feeling of fear that a sensitized person experiences can be very intense. The simple shock of tripping in the dark may be enough to bring a flash of panic to a severely sensitized person. Also, under the constant strain of anxiety about the way he feels, such a person may find that, from time to time, 
He may feel all the upsetting symptoms I described above, the churning stomach, racing heart, sweating hands. As I've already mentioned, very few nervously ill people realize that their symptoms follow a well-known pattern shared by numerous, again, millions, sufferers just like them. The pattern of continuous fear and tension. They do not understand, you ought to underline this right here, they do not understand that their, theirs are the normal symptoms of stress. The ordinary symptoms of anxiety made intense by sensitization. They do not know that their symptoms are caused by adrenaline secreted when they are afraid, anxious. Nor do they know that adrenaline can act only on certain organs and only in a certain way, and that this is why the pattern of their symptoms are set, limited. Can't underline this one, guys. The pattern is so set that many nervously ill people have already experienced the worst their nerves can bring them, but they do not know this. This is important. I want to stop here a minute because one of the things that keeps people suffering and from anxiety panic is thinking, what's coming next? Oh no, what's next? What she's saying here is, you've already experienced it all. I mean, the way you respond may not be the way someone else responds, but you, you've already felt all your body's going to do. You've already felt the worst of it. Okay, the pattern is so set. Again, I'll read the sentence. Nursing ill people have already experienced the worst. Their nerves can bring them, but they do not know this. Their body has brought so many frightening surprises in the past they live in constant fear. What further surprise may yet be in store? They fear the unknown as much as they fear the known. They may fear the unknown more than the known. So they live anxiously, tensely wondering what will happen next. Their very anxiety determines that symptoms will continue to come. But whatever new symptoms may arise, they are always part of the same pattern of stress, still part of the expected pattern. I wish to stress very strongly that many sufferers from nervous illness have no specific problem keeping them ill, other than finding the way to recovery. The great majority of my nervously ill patients have been made ill and kept ill because of the way they feel, because of fear of what they think may happen next. I will now describe step by step the development and cure of such an illness. And you may recognize much of yourself in the person described here. Many people sensitized by one of the many causes described above are precipitated into nervous illness by the fear induced by some sudden, alarming, yet harmless bodily sensation, such as their first unexpected attack of palpitations, racing heart. Such an attack can be frightening to a high-strung temperament, especially if he comes at night if it comes at night and there's no one to turn to for comfort and research, and by the way, a lot of this does come at night. Some of you know, you don't have to shake your head as you know. It comes at night. The heart races wildly and the sufferer is sure it will burst. He usually lies still, afraid to move for fear of further damaging himself. So fear arises. It is only natural to be alarmed by sudden, unexpected, uncomfortable happenings in our body, particularly in the region of our heart. So that's why you're afraid. It's understandable. 
fear causes an additional outpouring of adrenaline. So the heart already stirred, the palpitations, becomes further excited, beats even more quickly, and the attack lasts longer. The sufferer may panic, think he's about to die. His hands sweat, his face burns, his fingers, fingers tingle with pins and needles while he waits, for he knows not what. The attack eventually stops. It always does. And all may be well for a while. However, having had one frightening experience, he dreads another, and for days remains tense and anxious. From time to time, feeling his pulse, many of you have done that too, if the palpitations do not return, he settles down, loses himself in his work, and forgets the incident. If, however, he has a second attack, he really is concerned. Apparently, the wretched thing has come to stay. Not only is he afraid of palpitating, but he's also in a state of tension, wondering what further alarm experiences may yet be in store for him. It is not long before tension, releasing more and more adrenaline, makes his stomach churn, his hands sweat, and his heart constantly beat quickly. He becomes even more afraid, and still more adrenaline is released. In other words, he becomes caught in the fear-adrenaline-fear cycle, and that's what it is. At this stage, the sufferer consults a doctor, which, by the way, you should do that. First time for sure. Who uses the seeds in reassuring him and banishing his fear. In other words, nothing's wrong with your heart. However, he may not be sufficiently reassured and may be unfortunate enough to be put to bed and advised, take things carefully and be sure not to overdo it. When so advised, the average person particularly if young and not yet protected by the philosophy of the age, lies in bed brooding over his bad heart, afraid to move for fear of straining it further. This patient was already in a state of nervous tension, worrying about the palpitation. Can you imagine his tension now? Perhaps you've experienced it. On the other hand, should the doctor, in an effort to reassure him, make too light of the palpitations, the patient may stay in bed of his own volition, convinced that the doctor is withholding the worst and has not told them all. If he remains tense and afraid, he is certainly to have further attacks, and more frequently they come the more he hugs the couch, the more he rests, the more time he has to brood, and more tense and apprehensive, apprehensive he becomes, his fingers constantly hovering above his pulse. In response to his anxiety, his heart constantly beats more quickly than it should although not so fast as when it's palpitating. By the way, for someone who's in the middle of this, the best way to make your pulse go up is take your pulse. <laughs> it will go up, because you're adding more adrenaline. When you do that, you're, you're anxious. Actually, he thinks it's beating faster than it is because he's conscious to every beat. You're sensitized, so you feel your heartbeat. Some you can hear it in your head. Boom, boom, boom. To him, it is thumping, banging, racing. One ingenious uh, woman arranged her pillow end-to-end -end so that she could lay her ear on the crack between them. In this way, she thought she heard less thumping. The sufferer by now is really sorry for himself. He loses appetite, loses weight, dreads being alone for fear of having a spell. At the same time, he's afraid to be with people for fear of having one and making a fool of himself. It isn't long before he develops most of the sens sensations of nervous illness, the churning stomach, giddiness, headache, Pains around the heart, in other words, the full adrenaline fear cycle. 
If fear of palpitations has not drawn this person into this type of illness, fear of some other upsetting bodily sensation generally has. Perhaps he's had pain in the region of his heart that he, in alarm and ignorance, diagnoses as angina. Self-diagnosis. Perhaps a strenuous, high, highly tensed life has given him a constant churning stomach or shaking heart in which he becomes alarmed. Whatever the cause, in answer to his continuous apprehension, his adrenaline-releasing nerves become sensitized, always ready to trigger off the upsetting sensations described above. He tries to fight or escape until he too becomes caught in the same fear, adrenaline, fear cycle as a person afraid of the palpitations. As mentioned, nervously ill people have these sensations as a more or less constant background to their day. They may have moments of respite, for example, some on waking feel strangely calm and may be able to lie at peace for an hour or so before the churning starts. Others feel calmest at night. Others know no peace. Some people, as well as having this background of disturbing sensations, are swept from time to time by intense waves of panic. It will be appreciated how disturbing this panic can be when a sufferer is working and trying to appear normal and how he lives in dread of it coming at inappropriate moments. Unfortunately, it's most likely to come at such times as he is then most apprehensive and afraid. Y'all got that? Because you're being anxious and you're sending adrenaline. It is possible that the reoccurring attacks of palpitations have now left him and he is more concerned with the other manifestations of fear. Although it is more usual to find the palpitations continuing and adding to the miserable burden. Okay, jump down to the paragraph. To healthy people, this history may sound all too childish and stupid. They think, why doesn't he pull up his socks and get on with it and work and forget this nonsense? That must be some Australian thing, you know, pull up your socks. That's exactly what he'd like to do. But what we, the healthy ones, do not realize is that by this time, the fear felt by such a sufferer is greater than any the average person has known or has paused to imagine. Repeated spasms of panic, when accompanied by exhaustion and sensitization, not only increase in intensity, but need less and less to start them. Dread of having them may bring on a whole sequence. Underline that sentence. Just dread of it and bring it on. And by the way, after today, you're not going to dread it. So it'll be different. Meeting a stranger, the thought of being left alone, even slamming the, slamming the door may suffice to, to make panic happen when you're sensitized. Also, in spite of a great desire to pull up the socks and get to work, such frequent intense spasms of fear seem to paralyze his will to act. Okay, go to the next page, page 19. You'll have to fight this thing, old man. He looks back with longing at the person he used to be, the person who could sit peacefully and enjoy a good book or happily watch television. He apprehensively, apprehensively counts the weeks, the months, the years since he was that person. He reasons that if he cannot become himself again by fighting, how else can he be? Okay, guys, underline this right here. Fighting is his natural defense. The only weapon he knows. So he fights even harder. But the harder he fights, the worse he becomes. Naturally, fighting means more tension. Tension, more adrenaline, and further stimulation of the adrenaline-releasing nerves, so the continuation of the symptoms. 
This is where a lot of people get stuck. I gotta fight this thing. I gotta fight it. I gotta press through it. What are you doing? You're getting tense. You're shooting more adrenaline in. That is not what you need to do. To make matters worse, his friends do not hesitate to advise him to fight. Even his doctor says, you may have to fight this thing, old man. You must let it get the better of you. What has happened to him, he cannot understand. He's like a man possessed. He does not realize that there is no devil sitting on his shoulder. That he's simply doing this to himself with fear. Fight and flight from fear. It is at this stage that he may develop a severe headache, which he likens to an iron band encircling his head, or to a weight pressing on top of it. He may be giddy, nauseated, have difficulty expanding his chest to take a deep breath, feel a heavy soreness around his heart or a sharp pain under it. Again, guys, uh, everyone should have a doctor check them out. If you think something's going on with your heart, go to a doctor. Don't say, well, I went to this class with Gary and I'm going to say a doctor. Okay, go to the doctor and make sure you get it checked out physiologically. But when the doctor says nothing's wrong with your heart, go back to this book. Okay, she talks a little bit about sedation. And I just want to go down to the bottom of page 20 where the paragraph starts with and yet. And yet, however sedated this person may be, may be, fear usually finds its way through such sedation. Sedation softens the blow, but does not do, but it does do that. And so it plays an important part in recovery, as we discuss later. He, she says at some point, some people may need to, for just some brief time, be sedated. Okay? But she's saying that's not a long-term solution. Because there's a, even that will start working. And unless you get more and more sedated, you don't want to live like that. So again, for, for some people, at some time, for a short period of time, you might need to do that. Again, talk to a doctor about that. But what we're going to learn today is you don't need to live on that. Okay? Okay. Let's go to page 22. Second paragraph, strain may cause severe headache. Ada had migraine. Some of you have migraines as a result of this. Strain may cause severe headaches and physical exhaustion, but unless accompanied by constant fear, it will not cause the incapacity known as nervous illness. Okay, fear's got to be in there to keep it going, guys. When work threatens to become Beyond our physical strength and our responsibilities demand that we keep going, fear usually comes into the picture. And any ensuing nervous illness is caused not by the exhaustion, as many believe, but by the fear it brings. By the way, hard work does not cause this. You know, exhaustion, we're not talking about exhaustion. You can be hard work. Hard work is not the problem. Fear is the culprit. Anxiety, that's the problem. You go to page 23. Under the single pattern, the nervous illness described in this chapter was not complicated by a particular problem. It was caused by no more than fear of the very feelings that fear itself had aroused. Underline that. It was caused by no more than fear of the very feelings that fear itself had aroused. And as such, is the commonest and most straightforward form of nervous illness we know. If yours is this type of illness, 
It is a step toward cure to see your various symptoms as part of a single pattern coming from a single cause, fear. These symptoms are not peculiar to you, but are well known to many like you. However distressing your symptoms may be, I assure you that every unwelcome sensation can be banished and you can regain peace of mind and body. All right? Chapter 5. We're not, again, guys, I'm gonna, we're going we're to go through this book. for. Now we're going to skip a whole bunch, so don't think, my gosh, he really is going to read this book today. <laughs> All right? All right, chapter 5, page 24. Let's go to the second paragraph. This is too simple for me. The treatment of all symptoms depend on a few simple rules. When you first read them, you may think, this is too simple for me. It will take something more drastic to cure me. In spite of this, you will need to be shown how to apply this simple treatment. You may often have to reread the instructions. That's why I want you guys to have these books. The principle of treatment can be summarized. Here it is, guys. Here's the cure. The principle of treatment can be summarized as facing, accepting, floating, letting time pass. Okay, now we're going to develop that. There's nothing mysterious or surprising about this treatment, and yet it is enlightening to see how many people sink deeper into their illness by doing the exact opposite. Let us look again briefly at the person described in the last chapter, the person afraid of the physical feelings aroused by fear, and see if we can pinpoint his own treatment of his illness. First, he, because he became unduly alarmed by his symptoms, examining each as it appeared, listening in, in apprehension. He tried to free himself of the unwelcome feelings by tensing himself to meet them. He tried to free himself of the unwelcome feelings by tensing himself to meet them or by pushing them away, agitatedly seeking occupation to force forgetfulness, in other words, by fighting or running away. Also, he was bewildered because he could not find cure overnight. He kept looking back and worrying because so much time was passing. He was not yet cured, as if this were an evil spirit that could be exercised if only he or the doctor knew the trick. He was impatient with time. So briefly, he stand, here's what he did, running away, not facing, fighting, not accepting, Arresting and listening in, not floating past, and being impatient with time, not letting time pass. Need we be impressed if he thinks it will take something more drastic than facing, accepting, floating, letting time pass to cure him? I don't think we need. Now let's consider how you can cure yourself by facing, accepting, floating. Letting time pass. Well, first consider. Well, first consider cure of the constant symptoms and then of the recurring attacks. In chapter six. First, look at yourself and notice how you're sitting in your chair. I have no doubt that you are tensely shrieking from the feelings within you, and yet at the same time are ready to listen in in apprehension. I want you to do the exact opposite. I want you to sit as comfortably as you can. Relax to the best of your ability by letting your arms and legs sag in the chair as if charged with lead. In other words, let your body flop in the chair. 
Now examine it. Do not shrink from the sensations that have been upsetting you. I want you to examine each carefully. Analyze and describe it out loud to yourself. For example, you may say, my hands sweat and tremble. They feel sore. This may sound a little silly. You may smile. So much better. Okay, here's what she's saying here. When you get into this, she's saying, okay, you feel something coming. You feel some tension coming. You don't run from it. You don't fight it. Let it come. Let it come. Don't be afraid of it. It's not going to do it. It's not going to, it's not going to be a big deal. Let it come. And what happens is the more you do that, the less power it has. Because the less fear and less adrenaline you're putting into the situation. Let it come. You've already, you've already felt the worst your body can give you. Let it come. Just sit there. Don't get up and walk around. I feel it coming. i got to do something. Let it come. That's what she's saying here. Churning stomach. Begin with the nervous feeling in your stomach. Let the so-called the so-called churning. This may feel like an uneasy fluttering or may bore steadily like a hot poker passing from your stomach to your back. Do not intensely flinch from it. Go with it. Relax, analyze it. Take a few minutes to do this before reading on. Now that you have faced and examined it, is it so terrible? If you had arthritis in your wrist, you'd be, you would be prepared to work with the arthritic pain without becoming too upset. Why regard this churning as something so different from ordinary pain that it can frighten you? Stop regarding it as some monster trying to possess you. Understand that it is, it is but the working of oversensitized, adrenaline-releasing nerves, and that by constantly shrinking from it, you have stimulated an excessive outflow of adrenaline that has further excited your nerves to produce continual churning. By your anxiety, you are producing the very feelings you dislike so much. While you examine and analyze this churning, a strange thing may happen. You may find your attention wandering from yourself. This thing, which seems so terrible while you stay tense and flinch from it, may fail to hold your attention for long when you see it for what it is. No more than a strange physical feeling of no great medical significance and causing no real harm. Again, I'll underline that last thing. No more than a strange physical feeling of no great medical significance and causing no real harm. Okay, just a broken leg takes time to heal. So be prepared to accept and live with it for the time being. Accept it as something that will be with you for some while, some time yet, in fact, while you recover, but something that will eventually leave you if you're prepared to let time pass, not anxiously watch the churning and during its passing. So accept it. It will go away, but accept it for now. But do not make the mistake of thinking that it will, be go it will go as soon as you cease to fear it. Your nerves are still sensitized. And it will take time to heal. Just as a broken leg takes time to heal. Let me stop there a second. Because you're going to all leave here realizing what's going on and not afraid of it anymore. But just because you're not afraid of it anymore doesn't mean you're not going to immediately go from being sensitized to not sensitized. That's going to take some time to heal. But it will. It will. Do not make the mistake of thinking that it will go as soon as you cease to fear. Your nerves are still sensitized. It will take time to heal just as a broken leg takes time. However, as you improve and are no longer afraid of the churning, do not try to cure it by controlling it, and are prepared to accept it 
and work with it present, you'll gradually become more interested in other things and gradually forget to notice whether it's there or not. This is the way to recover. By true acceptance, you break the fear adrenaline fear cycle. In other words, the churning adrenaline churning cycle. So acceptance is key. True acceptance, the keystone to recovery, page 28. From this discussion, you will appreciate that true acceptance is the keystone to recovery. And before you continue with examination of your other symptoms, we should make sure that you understand its exact meaning. I find that some patients complain, I have accepted the churning in my stomach, but it's still there. So what am I to do now? How could they have accepted it while they still complain about it? Or as one man said, after breakfast, the churning starts. I just can't sit there and churn. If I do, I'm exhausted after hours. So I have to get up and walk around. But I'm too tired to walk around, so what am I going to do? I said to him, you haven't really accepted the churning, have you? Oh, yes, I have, he answered indignantly. I'm not afraid of it anymore. But he obviously was. He was afraid that after an hour's churning, he'd be exhausted. So he sat tensely dreading its arrival, shrinking from it when it comes, and worrying about the exhaustion to follow. Of course, the churning itself, a symptom of tension, must inevitably come while he's so tensely awaiting it. I tried to make him understand that he must be prepared to let his stomach churn and to continue preparing to continue reading his paper while it churned. He must try to loosen the tight hold on himself, literally let his body sag in the chair, Go toward, not shrink from, any feeling his body brings. Now, I know this is so unnatural, guys, what she's talking about. It is so unnatural. That's why people are stuck in this tension. Because the body, our natural tendency is to, is to fight it, resist it. But that is, all it does is put more drill in it. It takes a while to change the way you think about this. But when you do, that's how you get healed. Only by doing so was he, only by doing the doing would he be truly accepting. In this way, and only in this way, would he eventually reach the stage when he would no longer it would no longer matter whether his stomach turned or not. Then, freed from the stimulus of tension and anxiety, his adrenaline releasing nerves would gradually calm down, and the churning would automatically lessen and finally cease. The symptoms are always a reflection of your mood. This man was asked to do more to do no more than change his mood from apprehension to acceptance. The symptoms of this type of illness are always a reflection of your mood. However, it is well to remember that it may be some time before your body reacts to the new mood of acceptance, and that it may continue for a while to reflect a tense, frightened mood of the preceding weeks or months or years. This is one reason why nervous illness can be so bewildering why this old man was bewildered. Underline this. He had begun to accept, but when the symptoms did not disappear immediately, he quickly lost heart and became apprehensive again, although trying to convince himself that he was accepting. It takes time for a body to establish acceptance as a mood, and for this eventually to bring peace. Read that again. It takes time for a body to establish acceptance as a mood 
and for this eventually to bring peace. Just as it took time for fear to become established as continuous tension and anxiety. That is why letting time pass is such an important part of your treatment and why I emphasize it again and again. Time is the answer. But there must be that background of true acceptance while waiting for time to pass. Now, look at your hands. They sweat. They tremble. Maybe the skin is sore, tingles with pins and needles, but the hands of any frightened, tense person may feel like that. And you're certainly frightened, so how could your hands behave otherwise? The sweating, trembling, pins and needles of soreness are no more than the physical expression, physical expression of oversensitization of your adrenaline-releasing nerves, anxiety, and fear. These sensations get no worse than this and could never prevent you from using your hands. Maybe your hands do sweat and tremble, but they're still good hands to use. Therefore, accept the sweating, trembling, soreness, and tingling for the time being. These cannot be cured overnight. With acceptance, although your hands may still tremble and sweat for a while, you'll find some peace. Enough to begin to still the outflow of adrenaline so that your sweat glands will gradually calm down. In place of fear, adrenaline, sweat, you put acceptance. Less adrenaline, less sweat. And finally, you have peace. No excess adrenaline, no excess sweat. It is as simple as that. Although acceptance may not seem so simple at first. You go down to hyper, uh, hyperthyroidism. Paragraph, hot trembling hands are also found in a sickness called hypo, hyperthyroidism, which is not just nerves, although it may look like it. So uh, do not persevere with hot trembling hands unless you have the assurance of your doctor that you do not have this hyperthyroidism. So she's saying get checked out. Again, and I don't want to reiterate that. Get checked out by a doctor make sure it's not something else. Okay, racing heart or heart shakes. Now examine your racing heart. By racing, I do not mean the short attacks of palpitations you may have from time to time, but the constant, quickly beating, thumping, banging, shaking heart as your daily companion. You probably think it is racing, as why it shows the expression. But if you find a watch with a second hand, take your pulse. I doubt if it was beating more than 100 beats each minute. Maybe beating 120, but I doubt even this. In fact, your heart is probably not working much harder than any other healthy heart. The difference is that you have become sensitized to its beating and that you feel each beat. And you remain sensitized to its beating while you listen to it and anxiously record each beat. I want you to realize that it will not harm your heart in the least bit this way. You could play tennis or baseball if you wished. If you had the interest and energy to play such games, it's more likely that your heart would calm down and beat more slowly while you're playing than it does while you're sitting holding your pulse. I'm assuring, of course, that you have a, you've had a medical examination and have been told that your trouble is only nerves. These weeks of waiting and watching and holding your pulse have been a waste of time. You cannot harm your heart. You can do anything you wish, provided you're prepared to put up temporarily with the strange feelings that come from the region of your heart. The soreness and pain are merely muscular chest wall strain brought on by tension. A diseased heart does not register pain where you feel it. Heart pain is not felt in the heart. So as far as your heart is concerned, it is a good heart, being very much like any other. 
You're only aware of its beating and making yourself more aware by worrying about it and paying it too much attention. Have the courage to relax and analyze this beating and understand that it, too, like sweating hands and churning stomach, is once again the result of oversensitization of adrenaline-releasing nerves. The nerves of your heart have become so sensitized by fear that they answer the slightest stimulus. A sudden noise may suffice to make your heart rattle. Or more puzzling still, it may suddenly beat quickly for no appropriate reason. Be prepared to live with this erratic beating until your nerves become less sensitized. They will do this as you become more philosophical and accept and accept the racing and thumping as part of your recovery program. You may have made the mistake of thinking that while your heart continues to beat quickly, you must still be ill. It may be some weeks before you'll cease to be conscious of its quick action. But once you accept it, you'll be getting better all the time. There's no magic switch to calm your heart immediately. Well, sedatives is going to be a great help, and you need not hesitate to let your doctor prescribe them. Again, she'll go on to say temporarily. Sore scalp. The reason I'm going through these different ones is because some of you guys are going to go, now he's talking about mine. Okay. The soreness around or on top of your head is caused by contraction of your scalp muscles as a result of continuous tension. You may notice how relief comes if you press your scalp or place a hot water bag where it is most sore. This should prove to you that the cause is local. Otherwise, you're not having a brain tumor. It's local, or you can reach it. It's not deep-seated. These are not the symptoms of a brain tumor. Since contraction of tense muscles cause pain, it naturally becomes worse when you worry and approves as you relax and release tension. Pain-killing tablets help, but only a little. With relaxation that follows acceptance, Tension eases and the pain gradually lessens. However, this scalp pain, this iron band, is a most stubborn symptom to cure. So do not despair if it lingers a while. I assure you that it eventually goes. The hardest, tightest band will gradually lessen and disappear with acceptance. I've seen that with people would be the last thing to go. They have several symptoms and they have the, feel like an iron band around your head pressing in. That's, that seems to be the last one to go. Okay, page 33, putting up with. Make sure that you appreciate the difference between truly accepting and only thinking you're accepting. Make sure you know the difference between truly accepting and just putting up with. Putting up with is what you have been doing for a long time. Goodness knows how you've been putting up with it, but it hasn't got you very far, has it? Putting up with means tensely going forward, hoping the disturbing feelings will not come. Putting up with means withdrawing from panic, in panic. Adding panic to panic. Hoping that panic will go quickly and not come back. It means avoiding people and places that bring on panic. So the one's horizon becomes narrower and narrower until it's finally bound by the front gate. It means always keeping the way open for quick retreat. It means expecting retreat. It means continued illness. I know one lady who she kept being more and more afraid to go places because she was scared she was going to be embarrassed herself when she got there by having a panic attack. She thought she'd have one for everybody pass out and be embarrassed. So she went less and less places. When she would, she'd sit by the door and she wouldn't even do that. But she's scared, but she couldn't get from the car to the place without passing out. 
And I just got to where she wouldn't leave her house, and when you go to the mailboxes, she's scared she'd pass out the mailbox, and people would drive by and see her pass out. So then she wouldn't even leave her house. And that's where this kind of ultimately leads. If people start to not accept and start to, you know, fight it and be afraid of it. Okay, true acceptance means letting your stomach churn, letting your hands sweat and tremble, letting your heart thump without being too disconcerted about them. Does not matter if at first you cannot do this calmly. Who could? It may be impossibly calm at this stage. And you may find that one minute you can accept it, the next you can't. Don't be upset by this. It is normal in these circumstances. Okay, underline this. All I ask for as acceptance at this stage is that you're prepared to try to live and work with your symptoms while they're present without paying them too much respect. Don't be bluffed by physical feelings. Later on, she calls it a, I guess it's another old strength thing. She calls it a bogey, you know, I guess we call it like a, it's just a boogeyman. The boogeyman's not real, right? Well, she, but since she says that's, she goes, wow, you realize, you know what, I've been bluffed. My nerves have bluffed me. Now I call their bluff. Okay. After examining these terrible feelings, I want you to remain seated and concentrate. We're going to take a break in seven minutes, guys. After examining these terrible things, I want you to remain seated and concentrate on each in turn and try to make it worse. You hear what she's saying? Are you having something happen, like palpitations? She's like, try to make it worse. See if you can make it worse. You can't. In fact, you're going to find out, you know, that since you're not, you're actually changing the way you think about it while you're trying to make it worse and you're not afraid of it then, that they actually go down. So after examining these terrible fears, I want you to remain seated and concentrate on each of them and try to make them worse. You'll find you cannot. The power of the adrenaline-releasing nerves is limited. You may succeed in slightly intensifying its effect with concentration, but only slightly, and yet all the time, without realizing it, You've been shrinking from facing these symptoms squarely because you're afraid that by doing so you would somehow make them worse. It was as if you gave them a fearful sideways glance. Let me reassure you, you cannot increase your symptoms by facing them or even trying to intensify them. In fact, you may find that when you try to consciously make them worse, they improve. The very act of concentrating on them in this way means that for the time being, at least, you, you look at them with some interest rather than fear. And even this brief respite from tension may have a calming effect. In other words, you're no longer withdrawing from your symptoms. Symptoms can be intensified only by further fear. Underline this. Symptoms can be intensified only by further fear and its resulting tension, never by facing and accepting. Are you beginning to suspect that your symptoms may have had you bluffed? They most certainly have. Okay, we're going to just, for a little more, we're going to take a break. A student whose, senses, whose sensations were very much as I have described could make very little headway at his studies because of a banging heart. One day when he thought he could go, would go crazy unless he could get relief, a friend, an ex-soldier, came to see him. He told his friend about his suffering and said, I can't stand it much longer. I have done all I can to fight it, and I don't know which way to turn. Surely there's a way out of this hell. The friend explained that many soldiers at the front had had, had nerves like this until they realized that they were only being bluffed by them. He advised the youth to stop being bluffed by his nerves. 
to float past all suggestion of self-pity and fear and go on with his work. The student saw the light, and from being afraid and to put one foot in front of the other for fear of damaging his heart, in two weeks, he was climbing mountains. That was many years ago. He, had some, he, had, he has similar feelings now from time to time when overwrought, but he knows that they will pass if he relaxes, goes toward them, accepts, and floats past them. He has learned to live with his nerves, how to desensitize himself when necessary. <coughs> to float is just as important as to accept, and it works similar magic. I could say, let, let float and not fight be your slogan, because it amounts to that. Just as a person floating on smooth water lets himself be carried this way, that way by the gentle movement of the water, so should the nervously ill let his body go with the feelings his nervous reactions bring instead of trying to withdraw from them or force his way through them. Okay, go to page 38, and we'll finish this chapter and we'll take a break. 38, second paragraph. The average person tense with battling has an innate aversion to practicing masterly inactivity and letting go. He vaguely thinks that were he to do this, he would lose control over the last vestige of his willpower and his house of cards would tumble. As one young man said, I feel I must stand on guard. If I were to let go, I'm sure something would snap. It is absolutely necessary for me to keep control and hold myself together. When he was obliged to talk to strangers, he would dig his nails into his palms while he tried to control his trembling body, conceal his state of nervous tension. He had watched the clock anxiously, wondering how much longer he could keep up this masquerade without cracking. It is especially to such tense, controlled, nail-digging people that I say, practice masterly inactivity and let go. If your body trembles, let it tremble. Don't feel obliged to try to stop it. Don't try to appear normal. Don't even strive for relaxation. Simply let the thought of relaxation be in your mind, in your attitude towards your body. Loosen your attitude. In other words, don't be too concerned because you're tense and cannot relax. The very act of being prepared to accept your tenseness relaxes your mind. And relaxation of bodily, a body gradually follows. You don't have to strive for relaxation. You have to wait for it. When a patient says, I've tried so hard all day to be relaxed, <laughs> surely he has had a day of striving, not of relaxation. Let your body find its own level without controlling it, directing it. Believe me, if you do this, you will not crack. You will not lose control of yourself. You will float up from the depths of despair. The relief of loosening your tense hold on yourself, of giving up the struggle, and recognizing that there's no battle to fight except of your own making, may bring a calmness you've forgotten existed within you. In your tense effort to control yourself, you've been releasing more and more adrenaline, so further exciting your organs to produce the very sensations from which you've been trying to escape. Page 40, last paragraph. 
We'll take a break. Float past tension and fear. Float past unwelcome suggestions. Float. Don't fight. Go to the peak of experience with utter acceptance and let more time pass. All right, let's take a two-minute break, guys, and then we'll come back. And just put a little bit more in this book, and I've got a handout for you when we go to some more stuff. So.